A vision without execution is just a dream. Welcome to Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. Like the show title says, Chris speaks with transformative experts and business leaders who share their successes, failures, and leadership tips that will help you transform your business into a success story. Now, here's your host, Chris Elias. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Transformative Experts. Here we are at year end, and we've decided to put together a best of episode. It's kind of a best of 2021. And, you know, really, how do you pick a best of uh, with so many great shows and such a great year? Um, I don't know. You just pick some of the ones that you really enjoyed. And so I've got three uh, great conversations that we're going to bring into this show. Uh, the first one is going to be with Paul Venn. The next one will be with Ken McMullen, and the last one with Janae Wright. These are uh, people that were really highly influential to me and conversations that I really enjoyed. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Tell the, the um, listener base, I mean, you know, many don't know who you are. Tell the listen, listener base a little bit about your company and what you do. Uh, sure. So uh, I work for, uh, as you've said, I, I work for Hudson Rouge. And Hudson Rouge is actually a marketing communications agency, which if you were to go back uh, a decade, we'd all be calling it an advertising agency. So, you know, right there, we can talk about transformation of, of, of that particular title and, and, and why that's the case. But Bruce uh, is part of a much bigger company uh, listed on the London Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ called WPP. And WPP is, um, you know, the world's leading marketing services company. So, you know, I run a, a division within WPP. Uh, and my company, Hudson Rouge, is so named, by the way, uh, because um, we set up the company in New York near the Hudson River and also in Detroit, uh, near the Rouge River. So um, somebody came up with the bright idea of calling it Hudson Rouge. We, we opened an office in Shanghai last year, but I'm not looking to add another river to the name of the agency. Everybody will be pleased to know. Um, but yeah, that, that's what the company does. And, and our major client is the Lincoln Car Company, which, as uh, all your listeners will know, I'm sure, is the premium luxury division of Ford Motor Company. Marketing is business, and business is marketing. Right? All all marketing is business. I mean, what you are trying to do is bring something to market for a defined group of people that they are willing to pay a fair price for, and that with a bit of luck and a following wind, you have the business savvy to do that profitably over many years, you know, taking into account changing conditions and uh, changing trends and also com competition. So marketing is is fundamentally business right and it's interesting it often gets degraded to oh that's that's the stuff you that, that that's the pictures right that's the pictures and the words and the and the the tv commercials that that's marketing and you go no actually it, if that's your view of marketing you, you're going to come unstuck pretty quickly you, it, it, it is absolutely at the core of business thank you for permitting me just to, to kind of put, put that in there because it's important. And, and it, it ties, it ties to your point about, you know, where did I start in the business and what did I realize early on about advertising? Yeah, no, it's, it's really important. I mean, you know, we, we think of you, like you said, people think of tactics and now, now they say, well, it's all social media, but again, it's, I think it's, what's important is this really deep underlying piece and figuring out the message. There's, there's a whole piece on branding. I, I think we're going to go a long time today, right? So, I mean, there's all this stuff that comes together, but I love your point that marketing 
is business. I mean, I, I, I like to think that every time I go out there, every time I'm talking to somebody, every time, you know, not, I'm not talking about the times when I'm actually pitching work. I mean, that might seem obvious that that's sales or marketing, but we're always marketing. Yeah. We should always be thinking about the relevance of what it is that we think we're selling, yeah. right? How, how good is that? Whom are we selling? Is that changing? Are there needs? changing um what is our competition doing how are we differentiating from our competition maintaining our advantages and, and so on and so forth and it, it, it is therefore I, what i discovered pretty quickly was that the discipline i entered in which was the general management account management looking after the clients taking the brief from them bringing it back to the agency getting the work done and so on that's the classic view of account management and i realized pretty quickly that oh boy um I don't want to be a 40-year-old account director defined in that way. I wish some clients said that actually, you know, and, and, and it, struck, it struck me as being such a truth. I had, to, I had to learn more about the client's business if I was going to be truly useful to them. And there was probably 100 other people who could go to their office, take the brief, take it back to the agency, have the guys do the work on it, bring it back, show them some pictures. And that, and that as, as much as all of that still I'm passionate about, translating a really good brief into really good work and seeing the impact it can have in the marketplace, I'm more and more over the years as I was growing through the business realizing that your true relevance uh, in account management is whether you can actually make a difference for that client on their business as, as a whole. Yes, maybe the ticket of entry, maybe in a sense the most important thing initially is the quality of your advertising, the quality of your communications, be that in advertising or direct marketing or, you know, in social media these days. Yes, yes, yes. But, you know, what are you really doing to contribute to the discussion around the challenges that business faces? From your standpoint, from the world of marketing and um, sales and advertising and communications and social media and all the stuff that now rolls into the things that, that, that you do, and when you think in terms of, of messaging and what organizations are due, what, what does disruption mean from your standpoint? Uh, so, I, I, yeah, I did, I did use the, the D word, the disruption. And the reason I said it that way is because, you know, it gets bandied about, right, a lot. Uh, and, and I understand that. It, it's... It is real. It's out there. Companies are being disrupted. So how are they being disrupted? What's disrupting them? Is there a kind of unifier there? Uh, the one that I think I would alight on more than any other is technology is disrupting the way many companies are operating, uh, changing the way they're operating or forcing them to think differently because maybe a competitor has adopted uh, some technology that allows them to do different things uh, to create more value and so on and so forth. Um, we're seeing that in many, many different industries. Um, I'll give is, you, uh, is the disruption, sorry to interrupt, but is the disruption yeah. occurring because they're just not prepared or are they not being proactive enough to own it? Are they resisting that type of technology? What, what's happening, do you think? So I think that there is certainly an element of, of what you, you, you just touched on there, which is resistance. But, you know, let's assume that you're, uh, well, let me give you an, a, a hypothetical here. Imagine that you are the world's most famous watch brand right now, right? Which I, I don't know what the listeners are thinking of, but, but I'm thinking of um, a brand like Rolex. 
it is an absolutely fabulous business. Uh, they are um, uh, they are such a well run organization, and they have their um, their pricing is about as good as you can get, and their um, the demand for their products is still extremely strong. But if you're sitting uh, as the chief marketing officer of Rolex, you're probably wondering what the iPhone uh, or the uh, the Apple Watch, I should say, is going to do to your business. And, you know, the Samsung equivalent and the fact that young people are growing up wearing those as opposed to wearing a Rolex. Now, not too many people can afford a Rolex early on, but maybe we all aspired to that when we were younger. And um, I've no doubt many, you know, of the older listeners are, are wearing Rolex watches now. I think the question is, you know, if, if they put themselves in a younger pair of shoes, would, would they end up wearing wearing the Rolex now? And that's the question I think that, you know, a brand like Rolex is facing. Well, okay, but but so so I'll I'll, I'll push back just a little bit here. Is the question really about for for a company like Rolex? Let me ask the question this way: Is it really about always ensuring that you're staying up with "quote unquote" the times, or is it about knowing your brand? So here's a, here's an example, personal example. So a uh, competitor of Rolex is Tag, right? Tag Heuer or Hoyer, yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. And they've yeah. been around a long time. Swiss company, very, very good. Mm-hmm. And they recently released a um, a digital watch, yeah. a smartwatch, and um, you know it it works with a Google. Um, system and it allows you to put any tag face on it you want. Really cool. I went out. I went out and bought one. I thought, okay, this is a great way to get all the tag watches, right? All in one bundle. Doesn't work. Right. They, so, they failed to execute, and I think they got away from what they do best. The watch keeps the charge for hours, not even a day. Um, it's. I. It just. It doesn't. It. It never stays synchronized with a phone. It doesn't work with an Apple phone <laughs> worth anything. So you know, at what point do you just say, well, you know what, we like Rolex. We're a luxury brand. There's a place for us as jewelry. You know, and and we're going to stick with that. Yeah, I. I think you're. You make a really, really good point. There's. There's no doubt that. Um, understanding who you are and the market you serve is important. But I think, you know, a brand like Rolex, and I'm picking on Rolex here in this conversation, there could be a hundred others. We're seeing also in luxury that trends are changing. So not only is the technological disruption potentially, right? I take your point there. It may not, may not happen, but potentially happening. I I bet they're thinking about it. Um, But there's also another trend out there that they need to be thinking about, which is, more and more people are um, are defining the luxury that they want as experience rather than a thing, right? Yes. So we're seeing yes. some people say, I'd rather take the family to the Galapagos island, Islands and spend my $15,000 that way than the watch or the handbag yes. or the car. And and I think when you see the confluence of, of, of trends and potential competitors driven by technology or some other form. That's when you as a chief marketing officer, as a CEO, um, as a senior person in that company have to start thinking a little bit differently than you have been thinking because your market could be changing. And that kind of gets us to maybe one other topic that we might have time to address, and that's competitive advantage, defining and understanding it. So we talk about disruption, but it's also what sets you apart, what, 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 you know, what draws people. Um, tell us a little bit from your standpoint again, what's competitive advantage? Maybe share an example of, two of how you've helped an organization, could be any organization, really kind of go from not understanding your competitive advantage to 
determining what it is and, and marketing that? Yeah, look, I, I think that the, the, the one that I speak most fluently to is the one that I just talked about, which, which is Lincoln. I, I think that we and they defined a competitive advantage and it was born of the brand inside. What, what, you know, when you looked at, and I'm sure many of the listeners will be familiar with this, but when we looked at a heat map um, of what did people instinctively say about Lincoln, right? Once you got past the word president, as in President Lincoln, um, or past, you know, our use of Matthew, because his name would come up occasionally, um, you got the word that was pretty much front and center, big in that heat map was comfort. And, and so I think that we defined with them the idea that modernizing comfort um, was an interesting idea. And we, we, we looked at a lot of what was going on in, in, in the world around us. And we looked at brands that had to transform themselves. And one of the brands we looked at, and I, I give um, Kumar Gohotra, um, uh, who um, was at the time the president of Lincoln and now in a much bigger role within Ford Motor Company, give him a lot of credit here. He went off and studied a lot of these brands, and one of the brands he looked at was Burberry. Right? And Burberry is a very interesting, you know, classic British brand, which in its heyday was, you know, known for the trench coat and the, the plaid, the Burberry plaid, right? That brand started, that business started to decline because it, it allowed itself to, the imagery around it to be kind of fusty, stodgy Britishness. And nobody really was interested in that, and especially in a world where there were lots of other luxury brands sprouting up. And what Burberry did so brilliantly was they looked at themselves, tried to figure out what they were, what they could be, and they realized that they were fundamentally British and they were never going to change that. They weren't suddenly going to become, you know, a Parisian fashion house or an Italian fashion. They were British. So a bit like we worked with comfort, they worked with Britishness. And what they did was they um, they took advantage of a movement at the time that was known as Cool Britannia, um, which was a younger, more vibrant um, type of Britishness. And they adopted that uh, as an idea. They put Kate Moss in a Burberry plaid bikini and not quite overnight, but very rapidly, people started looking at them differently. So I, I admire what they did. And then I admire Kumar and, and, and Lincoln for looking at that and saying, aha, that's interesting. You know, if they can transform by doing a modernized version of what they are at their heart, we might be able to do the same thing. And, and, and we did. And so what, we, what we're looking at now is we're looking at a form of comfort, which is not just the seat you sit on, but your well-being. Right. And so we're, we're piggybacking a trend that's out there, which is to do with health and well-being uh, and the idea of stress. And if you, you know, it's interesting. We're looking at things. Actually, all brands ought to have an enemy that they rail against. And, and Lincoln's enemy, I think, is stress. If we can produce a less stressed driver, that's got benefits for them and benefits for the world. Right. Yeah. Less stressed drivers is a good thing. So um, so I think I, I, I'd look at I'd look at Burberry as a great example of that. True results happen where culture meets execution. The Execution Culture, co-written by our host, Chris Elias, is designed to make your company smarter, faster, and stronger by sharing real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture. The book is available now on Amazon. Click the link on the show page.
Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Mexicute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. For a free consultation with Chris Elias, visit nexecutegroup.com. That's N-E-X-E-C-U-T-E group.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. We're going to spend some time talking about communication, communication skills, uh, which right now um, with a pandemic is um, more important than ever. Obviously, some things will change permanently. So whether you're listening to this live and during the pandemic or you're listening to this two or three years later, what's happening, what's changing about communication styles is, is going to be the norm. Um, you know, video conferencing and, and those kind of things are here to stay. I'm sure we're going to see impact on, on travel, whereas people won't travel as much since we've learned to do this through video. There was hesitation prior to, um, prior to the COVID thing to, for, for people to do video conferencing, but it was starting to build. Now it's taken off and we've gotten used to it. But there are, um, there's all kinds of things still to talk about and um, we, we can always be better at communication and being able to recognize um, what other people are communicating and ensuring our communication is, is key. And so Ken's an expert at that. But um, before we dive into that expertise, Ken, um, you know, share with our guests a little bit about what makes you an expert. Uh, you know, you've got a really great history. So let's, let's, let's hear some of it. Yeah, I'll try. I mean, it sounds weird to say you're an expert in communication. Uh, everyone thinks they communicate well, right? It's other people that seem to have the problem. If we were all good communicators, uh, the world would be a much calmer, nicer place. So there's a disconnect somewhere. Um, yeah, but as far as pedigree, I guess if you want to call it, you know, I do have a master's in communications. Uh, I've spent 30 years at some level in communications, whether it was broadcasting or in professional communications and public relations and, um, and almost every, well, Every aspect of your life involves communications, but there's just a deeper dive into how do we as humans communicate? What does that mean? Are we doing it effectively? And um, somewhere along the way, if something's going wrong in a business, in a home, um, in the world, uh, between nations, you know, even uh, there's a miscommunication somewhere. So we're not all doing it the best we can. Yeah, that's a. Uh there's no but no better truth, and, and and I laugh because you know you make the comment about you know we all think we're good communicators and it's never us it's the other side. Communication That's is right. a two way street though. I can't believe how many times I hear stories from 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 you know leaders and businesses. You know the CEO. Well, I sent them an email. Why don't they get this? They should know this. Right. And um, there's there's that whole other half of it. Yeah. So. Th- that's right. Sending a communication, we think we communicated. The basics of communications, like communications 101, is there's a sender, somebody sending a message. There's the channel, 
or the medium on which it gets sent. So I'm talking to you right now. I'm sending you a message via this technology and you're receiving it. There's a receiver, just three elements. It's that simple. But if we were all sending correctly through the right medium and receiving correctly, our entire lives would be different. Um, we, we have low communication skills for the most part, even if we think we have great ones. Businesses statistically, on average, are terrible communicators because they do just what you said. They send an email and then they wonder why people didn't get the message, receive the message. Um, there's a lot of little variables in there that have to be looked at, monitored. Uh, most businesses do not, almost 70% of businesses do not monitor the communications, meaning they may have strategy. If they do, a lot don't. Some kind of commission strategy internally. But when they implement it, it's, it's, it's just what you said. It's information sent out, but there isn't any process of is it being received? Is it being heard? Is it being understood? Um, and statistically, it's in the 20s. 20-something percent of employees or less feel under-communicated to. They don't know what's going on in their organization. Therefore, they feel isolated. They act isolated. And nearly 80% of communication in a workplace is done by grapevine talk. And that's not what you want. Peer-to-peer, how do they feel? And if you feel under-communicated and then you're just talking around the ice water cooler, it's not going to be positive talk. And you're a culture expert. You know, that's, that's working against your culture. A term that we use a lot, it seems throughout the show, self-awareness. And, um, you know, it sounds to me, you know, listening to you, that, again, a high level of self-awareness is, is needed on the front end. I mean, you know, communication isn't just about going out and saying something. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's about having an awareness of what's going on and understanding, you know, not just, um, not just what point you want to make, but, but how are you going to, how are you going to bring it across who your audience is? How are you going to apply to them? And, and what, what kind of avenues, venues, whether it's technology, face-to-face, et cetera, are you going to bring that information across? Yes. And from an employee perspective, this brings a unique thing too, because employees, you know, can have their policies and this is our policy. This is our culture in the workplace. If you want to work, this is how you need to behave and be. And, with a pandemic situation, you're talking about people's lives and their family's wellness and their extended family's wellness. And it's mixed over your private way more into the public workplace. Um, so you can't stand there as an administrator and sound like you're dictating policies that are personally affecting their lives and families. It has to be approached, I think, a little more two-way-ish. Um, then your typical, this is the direction of the business. This is the decision we're going to make. The empathy has to be, and they're not, the employees aren't behind the closed doors where there could be lots of empathy, a lot of great data, a lot of the correct information going on behind closed doors with the other administrators. All the user end or the general staff here is an announcement. They don't know if you took into consideration their thoughts. They don't know what the conversations were. So the more an organization's able to be open and transparent, to include them 
with voices along the way where things don't catch people by surprise is is the key i think yeah and you know uh you know we've mentioned the pandemic a few times but communication flow has been shifting um you know, you really think about what technology has done with communication. And when you talk about, you know, the invasive nature of communication, even from time to time and, and how it inundates us, you know, if I go back to when I was a kid, we had three channels of TV, oh, maybe, maybe four, because you had channel 50, you had the UHF and the VHF channels and the, yeah. and, um, the UHF channels always had the, you know, kind of the off program, the stuff that the kids wanted to watch, I think more often, but you had the three main, you had CBS, NBC, ABC, and those were your news sources. That was right. it. Right. If I go back and then, of course, you know, with the launch of, of of cable television, where all of a sudden, oh, my gosh, we've got 30 channels. How could we possibly need 30 channels of TV? Right. Uh, but then you had CNN, which was the first jump to 24 seven news. And even then, I remember when they got launched, many of us would talk about well, how, what can they talk about for 24 hours? I mean, the news doesn't change that much. Now, yeah. fast forward to today. You know, um, you know, on, on my iPad, on my iPhone, you know, swipe to the right on the home screen. You bring up the news feed. Every minute, news is changing. Right. And so we are, we are continually inundated with information. I won't say we're inundated with communication. I would say we're inundated with information. And, you know, the same is true when we think about access. Um, Yesterday we were talking with a, I was working with a client and, you know, they were talking about how their staff, uh, you know, most of which are working remotely because, because they can in that particular business. And, and, um, and what's, what's occurred is thanks to texts, thanks to emails, they, they're never kind of off anymore. It used to be, you know, you'd come into the office and you'd be there till five, maybe you work late, maybe you work till six o'clock, you do things and then you go home. And when you were home, you were home. You know, there were, you know, go back even to just the 90s, there were no, there was no real email systems. Businesses didn't have them. Texting didn't really exist in its form. So people could go home and turn the world off. If there was an emergency, someone would call you on a telephone, on a landline, as we would call it, right? Right. Now, today, um, you know, I think about it. Last night, I got a notification from somebody I'm working with in, um, in Europe. And um, it was early morning for them. They'd gotten up and sent a note. And, um, you know, it, I didn't need to respond. I probably could have waited till this morning. But what do I do? I see it. I respond. We jump into action. So, you know, what's, what's occurred is this constant flow of, of, of uh, information and um, the kind of the, uh, how should I say this, a lot of one-way communication going on because of technology. This was, go- this was starting to happen pre-COVID, pre, um, wouldn't you agree? Oh, for sure. And it would have happened not as fast, but um, the millennial generation works this way. And our workplaces and our lives, I think, are going this way anyway. You have an older generation of managers and executives with a younger generation that only knows to communicate in 144 characters and to be have the devices around all the time. So it's happened much quicker because of COVID, but I think this transition to this mobile kind of 24-7 workplace and remote was on its way. Yeah. The other part of communication isn't just speaking, it's hearing. Or listening, yeah. right? And we have lots of communication books, uh, seminars. We're talking about communications. 
But if polled, only 2% say they've ever had any formal training in listening. And when you're on a when you're not on a, we're using Zoom as like a, a generic, but you know, a web live cam situation, with your camera on, you're forced to pay attention at some level. Um, you could be doodling and doing something else, but for the most part, you're kind of forced to pay attention. In the other avenues of communication, you have so many ways not to hear. So distractions. So even if you're talking, if you're not, if you're in person one-on-one, it's hard not to listen. People can notice when you've dazed off and you're in your own head and you're not paying attention to them. On the phone, you can't tell what people are doing, if they're doing laundry, if they're uh, doing something else. Sometimes you can hear it, but they're, you know, taking the dog out. They're not paying attention to you a lot of the time and you don't know it. Of course, texting is just brief little brain spurts of information and you're doing whatever you want to do. But when we're hearing, even this conversation we have today, um, people can only retain... Even if you're active, you're a professional listener, you're listening to what I'm saying. I'm sorry, what but, was that? Yeah, right. Sometimes I forget what I'm saying, so, <laughs> <laughs> as everyone does. But as soon as this conversation's over, you would have forgotten, maybe not you, you're super smart, but the rest of us forget half of everything we just heard. Yeah. And in the next day or two, the average is we only retain about 20% of anything communicated to us in a conversation or a lesson or or whatever so that really goes down if you're taking away other capacities where it's hard to listen or pay attention so if, if you don't have your camera on on a zoom meeting you can easily be more distracted that number is going to go down um so you know i have, I have a, a senior in high school and they had classes they do classes online. Well, they didn't have to be in person. It was just suggested. So he doesn't do it in person. He watches it later. Well, he can... The distraction level's down. If you have a, a teacher looking at you, you're going to pay way more attention and listen. Um, now they're beginning to make requirements. You have to be on, at least for attendance. It's getting a little stronger and such. Mm-hmm. But um, even our capacity, I'm saying a lot of words and you're forced to listen to me. But you can zone out super easy if you haven't already because your brain can work way faster than the amount of words. You can compartmentalize. You can take, well, I can understand what he's saying and I can think about this and what I have to do after the next thing or whatever. But you really can't focus on two things at once. But your brain, I can't talk quick enough than your brain can work. It's not challenged enough. Well, you've probably noticed. When did you start learning about communication, learning to communicate, Chris? How far back? You know, um, I'm assuming you're asking consciously because, you know, in college, certainly they would talk about it, but I don't think we were really learning about it, you know, and um, Sub- subconsciously. Yes. Well, subconsciously, I'm hoping I learned started learning about communication as a kid, but I think consciously you don't start actively thinking about it until you've had problems in the workplace later on in life. Yeah. So I would say, right, as, as soon as you're born, people are talking to you. Right, and that's and we're learning communication, yeah. and then when they the more they talk and tickle you and gog and Google, you respond back. You're learning communication. You're learning how to respond back. And your brain, of course, is then it's it's connecting all the connectors it needs to grow. 
and you're really on fire by the time you're in elementary school. So stats show that um, kids having a lesson, they're retaining and listening to like 90% of everything taught to them. They even come home saying, I love school. Well, then, I don't know how many times I've heard that, but well, elementary, my kid did. But uh, by the time they hit middle school, though, it drops off to forty-four percent. Yeah, a kid sitting in class is actually hearing what the teacher is saying in direct teaching, live outside of all this technology medium in the classroom. By the time they get to high school, it's in the twenties. That in. I think that says something to us. And what about now is we're, we're adults and we think we know it all, right? Uh, well, when you get adults, you realize you don't know it all. I guess it's those teen years you, you think you do and you're not listening. But huge declines in, in what we're retaining. But we're getting the same amount of communication to us. And if you take that to the workplace, employers think they're communicating all this stuff. But there shows the lack of people sitting directly in a classroom that are going to be employees someday, that just lucky if they're picking up 20% of anything, saying if it was right in front of their face live, much less mm-hmm. an email or some kind of, you know, newsletter <laughs> or whatever. So, so what has to happen for all employees, but especially we mentioned, keep saying millennials, but you know, the next one is Z, Z generation that are coming into the workforce, the younger ones that have only known not only internet, but high speed internet. Yeah. <laughs> they have no idea. So this is their whole world. Um, it's adapting to that because of this lockdown situation, but it has to change to meet their ways of hearing and working. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Mexicute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. For a free consultation with Chris Elias, visit nexecutegroup.com. That's N-E-X-E-C-U-T-E group.com. True results happen where culture meets execution. The Execution Culture, co-written by our host, Chris Elias, is designed to make your company smarter, faster, and stronger by sharing real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture. The book is available now on Amazon. Click the link on the show page. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. Today, I have with me um, the founder and owner of Primus Business Management, Janae Wright. Janae is also an author. He's written um, a book called uh, Black Business uh, Success Model. 
And um, he's a tremendously successful entrepreneur from from New York, and actually not originally from New York. Uh, but we'll we'll tell a little bit more of that story. But but um, Janae's story is is a great one that illustrates um, how you know focus, desire, drive um, can can take a, a situation, a tough situation, and turn it around and uh, build a great life out of it. And so, Janae, welcome. Thank you. Thank you both. So glad to have you with us this morning. And, uh, you know, so I, I, I don't want to tell too much of your story. I want you to tell your story. Uh, it's, it's a great story. So let's, let's just start at the beginning. Uh, share, share your star- story with our audience. Sure. So um, I am in, an immigrant. My family moved from South America in 1985, from Guyana, South America. That's one of the only English-speaking countries in, the South, in South America. And we've been here for, ever since. So I've actually been in America longer than I've been in Guyana, in my own home country. So I'm, I'm pretty much an American. I'm a Brooklyn boy. I, I grew up in East New York, Brooklyn, um, which at the time in the 80s was one of the you know low-income, um, high-crime neighborhoods. And just learning how to be street smart and all those terminology you hear about these neighborhoods, being street smart, understanding where to go, where not to go, was part of me growing up, being able to really assess situations really well. Uh, I, I always remember one, even in those days, you start to learn things from your friends and you come back and ask your parents certain things. And my mother's statement to me and my brother was always, regardless of what you do outside the house, when you come inside the house, you're back in Guyana, right? So it's like, understand who we are. Like we're Guyanese, this is what we do. And all that is different. So you have to learn, um, you know, how to, how to, deal with your parents who are from a different country as well as you know survive in a new environment and still make friends and and just be part of the neighborhood uh, and you know over over the years you know my parents moved me from the public school to a private school because I was getting in trouble I was doing a lot of nonsense I went to um, one of the best high schools I got into one of the best high schools in New York City which was Brooklyn Technical High School but you know I my junior high school had about 35 people in my class, and I went to Brooklyn Tech, which my class had about 3,000 people, right? So, but way big difference. So I, I stopped going to class. I did a whole bunch of foolishness, like cutting classes, not doing what I was supposed to do. So I was actually forced to leave Brooklyn Tech and go to a smaller high school. Um, in that high school, you know, same things. It's, it's you're dealing with teachers and people who don't really understand sometimes how to deal with kids. And it, it kind of... If you're not in a, in a situation, which I was in, where my family had, had my back as much as possible, right, that, that emotions and that connections was important. I remember it, me and one of my friends in that new high school walked in school one day with a hat to the back, and the, the vice principal called us thugs. Like, what, what is that? You know, and those kind of things I realized as I'm growing up now and, and seeing kids and having my own kids, you realize how words, like, affect the kid and if there's nothing else around to help counter that that's going to stay with them and they start to really act up on that so you know me growing up is, is typical brooklyn kid um doing having fun doing stuff and going off going off to college I, i'm surprised i actually went to college because my teacher was probably surprised i went to college as well i went to university of buffalo uh buffalo was a very very interesting place and i, I loved it I learned a lot in Buffalo. I learned how to make friends, make long life connections. Um, the truth be told, Buffalo was the first time I actually felt um, some racism, right? Because uh, it's different. It's it's 
I remember there was a, a event I was doing, and it was like out in Buffalo, deep in Buffalo, and I was on. I was a uh, the treasurer of our organization, and I had to go there first to sign papers and all these things. So I was at this this event at nighttime, eight nine o'clock by myself, and these cars came by, driving by so fast, and they started calling me the N word, and it, you know, it was definitely a scary situation. But you know, you 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 learn how to deal with these things because you have no other choice, right? You have no other choice yeah. in this world how to deal with situations. Um, but that that taught me, and that brought me to a realization of understanding where you are, no matter where you are, right? I was in East New York in a dangerous neighborhood, and I had to understand the environment. I went away to college, and I still had to understand the environment. So I think that's part of who I became as a business person, right? Understanding the environments that we're going into, understanding the environment of how businesses work, understanding the environment of of just the the, the minutia that a business has to go through is what I've learned over the years and just really try to be a source of resources for business owners as we started this company a few years after I graduated college. Your parents clearly um, had a set of values that they raised you by. I mean, the, the, the whole commentary that when you come home, you're in Guyana. What, what was that like? Were, were, your, were your parents tough? They were. They, they were no, my, no, I wouldn't say they were tough. I think there is there is rules and um, rules and expectations, yeah. right? If you followed every rule and expectation, you could do whatever you want. If you didn't, there's a problem, right? Yeah. I mean, like, you know, in, in those times, like school, I remember like one, one of the greatest things I love, summer school, um, summer vacation. I was a good kid, so my parents were like, whatever, go and do whatever you want. So in summer vacation, um, the schools around my neighborhood actually gave free lunch and free breakfast to the students. So me and my friends would literally jump on our bikes at seven o'clock in the morning between playing baseball, basketball, we'll go to go to one of the schools to get lunch, play, go back and play and play, and we would stay out all day and 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 have lunch and breakfast for us from the schools and come back home. My parents were okay with that, right? So as long as we were doing what we're supposed to do, they were okay. Because if, if you know, if I fail the class, different situation. There's no you're not you're not playing your games, you're not going outside. So they were tough in the sense of they had very much some some given rules and expectations of me, but I wouldn't I wouldn't say they were actually tough at all. So you know the the neighborhood you were in, and I hope you don't mind if I probe a little bit, but but I, I'm really kind of curious about a couple of things. The neighborhood you were growing up in, East East Brooklyn, um, did have quite a reputation, especially back then. I know I know things have changed a lot in in recent years, and and in you know communities have really worked hard to turn some things around. Um, and you know you can't avoid crime. It's 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 kind of you know it can be anywhere, but some places certainly are, are tougher than others. But but where you were in during that time was really really rough. Um, I have to imagine that you know that that there could have been peer pressure. There could have been a lot of things that took you on different paths. What were your, some of, some of your experiences, and how did you avoid that? How did you keep yourself centered and moving in in you know let's call it a you know the right or a productive? I mean, as opposed to joining a gang or or, or getting into one of the other crime situations, or as that um, as that principal would have called you. You know, how did you how did you not let the label thug stick and and, and allow it to influence you? I mean, my family is big, right? We're, my mother has uh, six siblings. My father has 12, right? So I, while I grew up in the, the area and I had a lot of friends in the area, I also had much more family members. So I spent most of my time with my cousins, 
right? And I spent most of the time in the house. Yeah. Uh, we had, you know, Thanksgiving was one of those old fashioned Thanksgiving where every single aunt and uncle showed up and the whole house was packed and people. So when you, when you have that many people around you who are positive influences, right? My uncle, I remember like, it's a silly thing. My uncle, since I was like seven, called me doc, right? Like doctor, mm-hmm. right? And I think that had like a little bit of a stigma on me that, you know, that's what he's calling me. Like he's calling me highly smart. He's calling me very much, he expects a lot from me. And those kind of things stick with you. So I think my family member, my, my, my environment around me was shielding me from a lot of things that were outside. Now, you know, there was always, there was always the ability for me to get in trouble. There was always the chance that I went when I went riding with my friends, something would happen. Um, and a lot of times it did, right? It, it's kids, it's boys. We, we're going to yeah. get in fights. We're going to do yeah. foolishness. But I, I honestly cannot say it, between my family and just pure unadulterated luck, I got some of the situations that I did, right? I think sometimes it's just, it's just you know, I can't explain why I'm here. And sometimes I can't explain how I don't have a much worse background or, or a, much, a much different background to my story. But I was able to know transition through all those situations and keep myself out of it right i think you know i think someone i think sometimes you, you have those like the the conscience and the things that's inside your brain telling you something is on and i feel i have that i feel like something inside of me whether it's whether it's you know god or your your ancestors or your grandparents sitting on your shoulders saying hey something's about to happen go home and i i truly believe there's many of times where i have those feelings where i'm like i'm going home I have no idea why I want to go home, but I'm going home and find something happened later on. So I sometimes I just I just call it love core. I just call it like you know my ancestors are looking out for me and kept me going straight and kept me out of trouble because it's 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 unbelievable for me to think that I that that I had any real part to play in making it out all the way. Janae, uh you know, I, I think what we were talking about really leads well into into your book, uh, Black Business Success Model. And, uh, you know, you talk a lot about, um, you know, what it means to be successful. And, uh, you know, it was just so. So what was the premise of the book? What, what, what got you interested in writing the book in the first place? Sure. So in, in my community, there's a lot of um, myths about black businesses, right? Um, myths that, you know, we're more likely to, to gouge you on price or on professionalism or um, there's, this, there's this really horrible joke that is prevalent in my community and it keeps and it keeps it passed on year after year. It's like, you haven't been to an authentic Caribbean restaurant unless you've been cursed out by the owner, right? And those kind of things, the, the ideas of the, the, the lazy DMV worker, all those are our myths that talk about, about our professionalism as a whole. And it really got to me. And it's something that I'm like, listen, the reality of who we are as business owners does not come even close to those myths, right? Because of who we are and what our, our people have been through, we strive harder than most to come across as professional. We strive hard and the most to come across as successful. So those myths are just really counterintuitive to the reality of what's happening. So when I thought about this book, I'm like, okay, so I'm going to write this book. And what I want to do is help those business owners kind of fight against those myths, right? So how do you get people to stop saying these things, these negative things about our businesses? And it, it came to light of like, let's, let's really concentrate on what it is to be a great business owner. 
right? Let's concentrate on how do we create and show our honesty and ethics. How do we create and show the vision and the, the mission of our company? So not just that, not just that it's important to me as a business owner, but that my staff understands what my vision is, understand what my ethics are, and they're they're perpetuating it out to the public for me. That my clients, when they come into my establishment, they understand that what they're going to get is going to be the most professional, the most um, upfront business owner. So as I'm as I'm creating this book, it just starts to like really dawn on me. Let's let's really make it into like a workbook where a business owner can take notes for themselves. They can track themselves. They can write down things. So like the whole page is in there of like this empty page where you can just write things in there and really take your take your business to this, this next level. And the other important part for it is like you know when you first start as, as a writer, I'm calling myself a writer now. Wow, as, as a writer, <laughs> when you first start thinking about it, it's like. I want to go and write this novel. I want it to be four or 500 pages of information. Let me just put it, then I started thinking, no business owner has the time to write 500 pages of a book, right? So I cut this down to like 120 pages in a soft cover book that you can literally bend and put in your back pocket and walk away and keep on you because it's going to teach you lessons of how to keep growing your business, how to keep people understanding who you are and how you're going to help create this level of of advocacy, right? And that's yeah. that's the underlying bit. I want every client, every employee, every customer to become an advocate of my business and that's how my business is going to grow. So I'm making sure that I put out the information to help them really grow their business and think through the future of it. Yeah, I, you know, that's excellent. You, you, you make me chuckle a little bit because um, many, many years ago, um, you know, I had the opportunity to meet uh, Patrick Lencioni, who's written a number of books on business, including Five Dysfunctions of the Team, a lot of the very, very popular yes. ones now. And, um, you know, he had, he had come here to Detroit, and we had a small group get together, and a friend of a friend put us together. And, and um, you know, this was before he wrote Five Dysfunctions, but somewhere in the conversation, um, you know, it came up with, uh, you know, how did you get started writing books? You know, how, how did you, how did you do it? And he, and, he, and he said, well, the first, first decision I had to make was um, I had to write a book that I would actually read, which means <laughs> it's got to be a book I can complete on a flight from Chicago to Denver, you know? And, and so you just, when you said it can't be a 500-page novel, it made me think of that almost immediately because you're right, business people, you know, uh, we're all maybe a little ADD. We're always jumping to the next thing to focus on. So something that's quick and a quick reference is very, very important. And I, and yeah. I, love, I love that you've got the, the, the places to write and everything. I think that, that probably for you, you know, success wouldn't be to see your book sitting pristine on somebody's shelf. Your success would be seeing it beat up, beaten up and falling apart sitting on the corner of their desk. I have a, a person who wrote the book, sent me a picture of it, and I was so excited. Like, they had, the person I learned after a while is like really one of those like scholarly people. They have like different color tabs on each one, different pages. They like had wrote writing all over it. Inside of it was all written up. I'm like, this is what the book is meant for. This means she's learning a lot. She keeps going back to it, and this is awesome. That's excellent. And so, um, so, so you had mentioned some of the, the the myths that you want to get behind, but there's a lot of strong business advice in the book. I mean, straight up. Um, you know, what are what are, you know? I, I hate to say, what are some of your favorite points? I, I, I think we all have our favorites. We we put a lot of stuff in the book, and then, then there's the stuff we kind of go back to over and over and over again. What are what are some of your favorite points? So so you know, we've got listeners here today. That um, that haven't been exposed to your book maybe before today, um, what would be what would be some things that that they should really think about, it, especially if they're thinking about starting an entrepreneurial business? Sure. So one of the greatest, or not greatest, one of the 
when you look at like, uh, if you look online or you Google and try to figure out what happens to business owners, why do most businesses end up failing? You know, you'll see all the accounting and all, all of the business management stuff. And then you start to realize the underlying factor is leadership, right? Is a leadership failure situation. And that's one of the chapters in the book is about leadership failures. And in that chapter, the subchapter that I love the most, because I, I have to, I wrote it, and I keep going back to it and reminding myself that I need to do this better, delegation, right? It is it is the, the pain in the backside for any business owner in the world. And it's understandable why it's pain, because your business is your baby. And like your baby, no one is going to feed your baby like you. No one's going to clean your baby like you. Nobody's going to run your baby like you. The problem is, if you try to do it all yourself, your baby's not going to make it. So yeah. understanding that, that delegation is part of a business owner's right, and they have to be able to use it properly, right? So, you know, there's different levels of delegation, right? There's the there's the micromanager delegation where I'm going to stand over you and I'm going to point exactly what you need to do all the time down to where I am right now, and I'm very happy about it, is the end result delegation, right? And end result delegation means, hey, I need a glass of water. That's it. You're not saying anything else. All you know is that somebody can bring you a glass of water. You're not telling them how much ice cubes to put in it. You're not telling them where, if it's, if it's, if it's pulling spray or tap water. All you care about is that at the end of the day, there's a glass of water on your desk. And you know that is one of my favorite chapters because it really homes in on one of the biggest problems we have as business owners. I hope you've enjoyed listening to these clips as much as I've enjoyed recording them. It was a great year. We've had so many phenomenal guests. Uh, These three in particular, Paul Venn, Ken McMullen, and Janae Wright, all taught me things, as did all our other guests. And I just want to thank everybody that's been part of the show. And we'll try to highlight more of you in uh, in the near future and bring some guests back. We also have a lot of great guests coming into the show for the next year. So stay tuned for new episodes and have a great new year. Thank you for joining Chris Elias for this week's edition of Transformative Experts. We hope you'll tune in again next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And catch our weekly replay on the Voice America Influencers Channel, Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a good week.